to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, over the course of the last several weekends, our Lord has been giving us an extended anthropological lesson. That is, He has been teaching us what human life has been created for and how we live in accordance with our created nature as creatures created in the image of God. Three weekends ago, this was explained through the images of the gate and the sheep, where our Lord made clear that we belong to no one except Him and that the fullness of life is lived only in unity with Him. Then, two weekends ago, Jesus taught us that he is going ahead to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. This image, as we saw, was an analogy for the embrace of the Father, which Jesus made clear by teaching us that no one comes to the Father except through him. We also saw that to go to the Father through Jesus means living with him and in him as he lives, which is as a perpetual offering to the Heavenly Father. This revealed a priestly identity at the core of every person, Said differently, the human creature has been created to become complete self-gift. Finally, last weekend, we were given the rules of the Father's house, if you will, the law, by which we are slowly taught how to become a complete self-gift, and which is most concisely summarized in the twofold love of God and neighbor. Today's celebration of our Lord's ascension into heaven is an apex of sorts in our Lord's teaching regarding human nature. In his bodily ascension, our Lord definitively reveals today that the whole human creature, body and soul, has been created for perfect unity with God. Our first reading for this weekend comes from the opening chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke the Evangelist. We get the most detailed account of our Lord's ascension into heaven here. It should be noted that while the ascension is not often highlighted in Christian thought, the Lord's ascension is, nevertheless, a central tenet of the Christian faith. Each week, whether by praying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, Christians profess their faith that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It is important to say here that in a way similar to what was emphasized several weeks ago in connection with the resurrection, when we speak about the ascension, we are not dealing with a mere metaphor, but a literal and physical event. Christians believe that Christ ascended bodily into heaven. Keeping this at the fore of our minds this week is central to understanding everything that will be said. In the opening chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke mentions Christ's ascension twice. The first occurs in his summary for Theophilus, who Luke dedicates Acts to, of the first of his two-part work, the gospel that today bears his name. The second occurs in verses 6-11, through which is the most extended account of the ascension. In verse 12 of this opening chapter of Acts, we are told that the ascension had taken place on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. In short, recalling the importance of traveling east highlighted several weeks ago in our discussion of the episode of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we find the same dynamic here. 
We have moved further east now, and therefore further towards ultimate union with God. Today, in his ascension, what the Divine Son had experienced for all of eternity is now shared totally and definitively by the human nature he assumed and united to his divine person at the Incarnation. This is the essential meaning of the ascension of our Lord, which is affirmed by the imagery surrounding the event. In describing the moment of Jesus' ascension, Luke tells us that after Jesus foretold the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and their subsequent evangelical activity across the globe, as the apostles were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. There are a couple of elements to attend to in this description. The first is the cloud, which obscures the view of the apostles as Jesus ascends to heaven. Clouds are at times used to indicate the divine presence in Scripture. Examples from the book of Exodus are especially pertinent for our discussion today, and by looking at these examples, we can say that the cloud signifying the divine presence has two key functions. First, it simply signifies the immediate presence of God. For example, when Moses is told by God to go up Mount Sinai to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments in chapter 24 of Exodus, we are told that the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. The same language is used to describe God's presence in what was known as the meeting tent. The meeting tent was a very important part of the Israelite camp, for it functioned as a portable place of worship, a mobile temple, if you will, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. The meeting tent was also where Moses, the leader of the people, spoke with God face to face as a friend. In chapter 33 of Exodus, we are told that when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Next follows an important detail. We are told that when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them, at the entrance of their tent. In the brief account of the ascension of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, he notes that as Jesus withdrew from the apostles, they worshipped him. While Luke only adds the detail about the presence of the cloud in the first chapter of Acts, it seems clear that the apostles recognized the cloud as indicating the immediate presence of God, and therefore bowed down in worship just as their ancestors had in the wilderness at the sign of the cloud. The second key function the cloud had was that it led the people. For instance, in chapter 13 of the book of Exodus, as the people of Israel flee Egypt, God, the Lord, we are told, went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Over time, this dynamic gets directly connected to the meeting tent by God. Thus, in chapter 40 of Exodus, we read that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. If we read the ascension of Jesus in light of the dynamics surrounding the cloud in Exodus, three points may be made, all of which tell us something about how we too might begin to share in Christ's ascension here and now. First, Jesus' ascension indicates that the human nature he assumed, body and soul, has now definitively entered into perfect communion with God on the far side of the grave that the Divine Son has enjoyed from all eternity. 
Here, the physical movement or directionality of the ascension becomes important for us to add to the mix. While Jesus does indeed move out of the sight of the apostles by moving physically upward, the movement itself is a sign. For the life of heaven isn't up there physically somewhere in the clouds. Rather, the life of heaven is a life lived at a higher level, or higher pitch of existence, if you will. Thus, just as sin is described as a falling out of communion with God, participation in the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of the incarnate Son enables us to ascend or rise to the higher level of existence that is restored communion with God. The fact that we are told that Christ ascends by being obscured by the cloud of the divine presence, however, tells us something very important about human life. The core of our lives is not in ourselves. Rather, it is in another, the other, if you will. For the very core of our existence as a creature created in God's image is not within the creature, but rather in the creator. The cloud obscuring the embodied presence of the embodied Son compels us to refer our understanding of Him and the human nature He has assumed to the presence of God, and thus it must be with us. Drawing the movement upward back into the picture, we can say that the human nature is ecstatic. The very life and identity of each individual human creature therefore consists in, and is perfected by, a reaching out to, and participating in, a higher level of existence, the life of God, who first loved it into being. Second, because he has entered into perfect communion with God in this fully embodied manner, the incarnate Son now becomes the locus of our participation in the divine life here and now. The incarnate Son himself is now the definitive temple, not made with human hands, for in his very person the divine and the human meet most perfectly. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, drawing an explicit connection with the meeting tent from the Exodus journey of the people of Israel. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. It is the blood of the incarnate Son, the author of Hebrews continues, that purifies our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. Because Christ is the head of the church, and he is continually and immediately present to the Father, we too, who share in the same human nature he has assumed, and who have been baptized into his death and resurrection, already proleptically participate in this divine communion through, with, and in him. Consequently, it is precisely by living as members of his body, the church, that we too begin to live at a higher pitch of existence, one that transcends yet never rejects or abolishes our current lived experience. Third, Christ's bodily ascension leads the way for us to do the same at the end of time. Said differently, Jesus goes ahead of us on our journey to the full freedom of the life of heaven, just as the pillar of cloud once led the people of Israel in the exodus from slavery in Egypt. Thus, although in a very real way we already share in the divine communion through Christ, we nevertheless continue to live in the hope that one day we too shall participate perfectly in the life of God as fully embodied human creatures. The ascension of Christ, then, signifying as it does the entry of the human into perfect, eternal communion with God, is the object of hope for us as Christians, the aim of all of our striving. 
Keeping this in mind, we can move on to the second detail to focus on in Luke's description of Jesus' ascension, and that is the phrase, He was lifted up. There are a couple of different words used to describe Jesus' being lifted up in His ascension that are important for our understanding of how we too are to follow along the path to full freedom that Christ has set out for us. In the Gospel of Mark and the book of Acts, the Greek words used to describe Jesus' ascension are very straightforward simply saying by various words that he was taken up into heaven. In Luke, the word used is the Greek anephareto, which again means was carried up. However, the root word here is the verb anephero, which carries two meanings. The first is I carry up or lead up, and thus speaks to Jesus' role as the one who goes ahead of us and leads us into perfect eternal communion with God. But the second meaning of anephero is I offer up as a sacrifice. Thus, the manner in which the incarnate Son is carried or lifted up into heaven is by the very same dynamic as had already appeared on the cross, as a sacrificial offering to God the Father. At this point we encounter a tension. For a sacrificial offering cannot simply be taken, it must be offered. Thus, while God the Father receives the living sacrifice of the incarnate Son, the incarnate Son precisely as incarnate, now ascends as high priest into the eternal embrace of the Father. Thus, in professing the creed, we do not pray that the Son was taken up to heaven, but that he ascended in the active sense. There is thus an active and passive dynamic at work here. The Father lifts up and receives the Son even as the Son offers himself to the Father. The offering of the Son to the Father in the Ascension is made present to us at the Eucharistic Liturgy. Because the Ascension of Jesus is not often discussed, this is possibly something that we miss. However, the Ascension is directly and explicitly connected to the Passion and Resurrection of Christ in the Eucharistic prayers. For example, in Eucharistic Prayer 3, the priest prays, Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving Passion of your Son, his wondrous resurrection and ascension into heaven, and as we look forward to his second coming, we offer you in thanksgiving this holy and living sacrifice. The holy and living sacrifice is the sacrifice, as we have said in recent weeks, of the whole Christ, head and body together. Thus, in the preface dialogue of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest calls upon us to enter into the sacrificial action of our head, saying, Lift up your hearts, to which we respond, we lift them up to the Lord. By participating in the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ our head, we thus imitate his ascension to the right hand of the Father. However, just as we have seen an active and passive tension in Christ's ascension, the same applies to us within the dynamics of the Mass as well. Commenting on the prefatory dialogue of the Mass to those who had recently been baptized on Easter, in Sermon 227, St. Augustine tells his listeners, You mustn't attribute it to your own powers, your own merits, your own efforts, this lifting up of your hearts to the Lord, because it's God's gift that you should have your heart up above. That's why the bishop or the presbyter, whose offering goes on to say, when the people have answered, we have lifted them up to the Lord, why he goes on to say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, because we have lifted up our hearts. Let us give thanks, because unless he had enabled us to lift them up, we would still have our hearts down here on earth. And you signify your agreement by saying, it is right and just to give thanks to the one who caused 
us to lift up our hearts to our head. What we experience at the Mass is therefore similar to what the Apostles Peter, James, and John once experienced on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Then, too, the clouds signifying the Divine Presence obscured the Apostles' vision of our transfigured Lord. In describing the event, both Mark and Matthew tell us that Jesus led or brought the three Apostles up the Mountain of the Transfiguration by using a derivative of the same Greek root word discussed previously, anephero suggesting to us that the glimpse of a fully transfigured life that the apostles enjoyed took place precisely by the dynamics of a sacrificial offering. At the transfiguration, the apostles experience a glimpse of the heavenly life by being brought up into the presence of God as an offering. However, in contrast to the apostles at the transfiguration, because we participate in the dynamics of the ascension of Christ in the Eucharistic liturgy, we not only witness the transfiguration, we take part in it. For each and every time we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, we are transfigured into His body. My friends, our participation in the ascension of Christ at the Eucharistic liturgy does not stop with our experience of an intense moment of transfiguration in our reception of the Eucharist. Rather, we are to imitate the historical dynamics of the ascension as experienced by the apostles. In Acts, Luke tells us that as the apostles watched Jesus ascend, two angels appeared and asked, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? In other words, the angels asked the apostles, What are you waiting for? Go now! Don't waste any more time! They had work to do, and so do we. At the end of every Mass, we hear echoes of the same charge in the words, Go now, the Mass has ended. We would do well if each and every time we heard these words, we called to mind our Lord's words from our Gospel for today, from the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus tells us, Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Through Christ, we have been given a share of life at a higher level of existence, precisely so that we might dedicate our lives to drawing the whole human family to experience the same. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.